Hello, everyone, and welcome to this latest episode of the Freshfields TQ podcast. We're here today to talk about corporate venture capital, and we'll refer throughout the podcast to CBC or corporate venture capital. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Salwa Ushan in the Amsterdam office and Marcus Walter in the Tokyo office. The three of us have spent quite a bit of time over the last many years representing corporates in connection with their minority investments, typically into private companies all around the globe. And we've seen a number of changes in this space in the last year. Venture investments have really become a priority for corporates over the last decade and in particular in the last several years. They offer corporates access to tech, access to research and development, and often corporates have very different priorities in mind when they're investing in private companies alongside traditional financial investors like venture capital funds and private equity sponsors. We find that our clients often struggle with a couple of different facets of these investments starting from whether the principal objective should be an economic one or one focused in the commercial IP and research-related benefits of making these investments. But maybe more importantly, and in particular recently, with the speed of these transactions increasing and the pressure on getting in on a deal increasing with all the players in the space, We've had a lot of conversations with corporates around how to structure their own internal programs to make these types of investments. There are a lot of different ways that corporates do this, and efficiency, organization, and effectiveness are obviously the most important pillars that corporates should think about when structuring these programs. So I was going to ask you, Marcus, how you've seen companies use what we typically call the the toolbox of alternatives in approaching these structures and thinking about how to organize themselves internally. I think, as you indicated already, Andrea, this toolbox is larger nowadays than it ever was. We see, for example, our clients simply looking to spot disruptive trends and like everything that's coming up on, on the horizon that could like destroy their own business model and Investing in funds and funds of funds or funds that are focused on certain sectors might be the right tool here. We see them hunting for new technologies or business models. And of course, direct investments and acquisitions might be the right tool to choose for that one. They want to cooperate commercially, which is easier always when you do direct investments. It's, of course, one of the most complex ones. With a lower priority, at least here in Asia, we see the desire also to simply be exposed to an innovative and and entrepreneurial culture or to hire talent and, of course, direct investments, full-on acquisitions or incubators with access to demo days, for example, might be the right tool here. The capabilities of the relevant corporate to execute those deals or to better to use those tools will very much inform which one they can use when. And if you already have good access to deals and um, you have a good team that can do those, Uh, you might consider setting up your own dedicated CVC vehicle or your business development team that is focused on that. If your access to deal flow is limited and and or you want to train your team to learn on the job, teaming up with an established VC to set up a fund of one that is managed by the VC might be the right tool. If you are not able to originate any deal flow or you are in a sector that is 
a difficult one and you just don't see the right ideas coming up on the horizon, you may consider partnering with incubators again or accelerators or set up your own dedicated vehicles and, and startup studios to look for ideas, to look for teams. And each of those tools has its very specific purpose. And we see our most successful clients actually deploying all of those. The challenge then is to stay on top of all of those different tools through all the different stages and on all of the different teams responsible for them, and then to share knowledge to ensure the, the overall strategic purpose is achieved, which, of course, is much more difficult to assess than pure financial return. I think in Europe, we don't really see any single purpose-driven corporate venture capital programs. It is really often that mixture you know, of sourcing innovation in some form or shape, as well as achieving, hopefully, at least a decent level of financial return, you know, even if it's just to justify the corporate venture capital program internally. Now, maybe just to add to what you said, Marcus, because I think that that very much applies to, to the European scene as well, is what's quite interesting, though, is that we also see CVC in Europe shifting slightly, and that's definitely not for all CVC, from being utilized as this innovation instrument to also more of a strategic instrument for driving growth and financial returns. And I think you can see that in the data in Europe, there's a very strong increase this year in CVC-backed 100 million plus mega rounds, which grew, I think, with over 300% just in 2021. A good example, for example, uh, is uh, Visa's investment into the Swedish fintech Klarna. So you also see this corporate venture capital slowly maturing, and they are sometimes also willing to pay high valuation in later stage funding round, which, yeah, I think it's quite interesting to see, you know, going really from that early seed uh, series A, looking for that newest cutting edge technology so also something that can really drive growth and, and financial returns and basically, you know, get in the game of having potentially outsized returns on a successful exit. We're seeing that a lot in the U.S. as well of late, the corporates coming into late stage rounds. I think that there are so many unicorns today that are seeking financing at later stages and those rounds are typically led by big financial sponsors. And in that sense, it's easier for the corporates to come in and tag alongside the financial investors. Whereas five years ago, like Saluba was saying, you saw corporates really sourcing very early stage technologies. And the result of that, right, was that they would have to be the lead investor in an early stage round, which takes time and resources in terms of the drafting of the documents and often a commercial arrangement that might have gone alongside that early stage round. And now with these later stage investments, they are a bit more focused on growth and economics and sometimes may not come with the commercial arrangement that corporates often sought in connection with their venture investments in the past. But instead, corporates get value in the form of reputation and recognition often by coming into a cap table of a late stage unicorn that may soon be exiting in particular. One thing that is related to that, that we often have discussions around in the US, which is related to Marcus's toolbox and what's most effective and most efficient is who at the company is the right person to be sourcing these deals. 
we certainly, I think, in the U.S. are finding more and more that it is either a separate fund or at least a separate business within the company so that there can be dedicated professionals committing their time to sourcing these deals and going through the execution processes for them. There's a tension there often because to the extent that these are early stage investments, you want to make sure the people sourcing them are in contact with the business people who are intended to benefit from the commercial synergies that come from these investments. And so the struggle now for corporates in the U.S. that I'm seeing is that struggle of having almost grown too large as a CBC program so that it is operating independently but has lost some touch with the core business and trying to figure out how to bring that core contact back to make sure that the corporate itself is getting as much as it can out of the investment. I don't know if you guys are seeing those kinds of tensions in Europe and in Asia. There's a huge variety of those tools in different stages, in different geographies, and maybe even in different sectors if the, if the corporate is not quite sure yet where it's going to go to in 25 years down the line. And even within that, if, if, you, if you have a set, like a dedicated business entity that is already dedicated and has lots of different vehicles and lots of different jurisdictions, already within that vehicle itself, the information sharing is, is one of the biggest issues. Not even talking about then to take the next step and aligning that with the overall corporate strategic goals. And then we see, for example, the most successful entities, at least from our perspective, are the ones where those decisions and processes are set up very closely to the head of the business development or even the CEO. And we see that more and more often, especially in Japan, leading to much quicker decision-making processes and being very helpful in doing those deals, obviously. Yeah, I think that's the same, Marcus, in Europe. From a startup's perspective, it is really important to understand who is the investment team and do they have the buy-in indeed of the C-suite at the parent company, right? It's almost even more important sometimes than does it sit in a separate fund or is it a separate entity or is it a, a just a team, a dedicated team within the within the corporate. I think the key question is really how does the internal approval process look like? What's the investment committee composed of? And I think there most successful CBCs, I would say, definitely have a mix, right, of the right people that know enough of the business that are close to the C-suite. Part of it is C-suite and you have investment professionals that can, you know, really validate whether this is a good investment, yes or no. But I think that mix is really important and especially if you need to roll out or if there's some sort of commercial relationship tied to the deal and you need to, you know, really work together with certain business units, their buy-in early on is going to be extremely important. And they're hopefully even involved in the due diligence process up front so that the success post-close is much bigger than if you keep those two worlds separate. I fully agree that it, it doesn't really matter that much whether it's technically a separate entity that is making those investments, where it's, it's more the, the internal buy-in. But I find that having a separate entity is, might help with the approval processes if there's a predetermined pool of funds, for example, but it can help in terms of building a brand and building a network. Building a brand as a, or a reputation as a reliable, swift, agile, and helpful investor 
or very often actually using a brand that is completely separate from the mothership, so to speak, might actually be helpful in doing the most sought after deals, which as Andrea said already, nowadays are rather closing in a matter of days and sometimes hours than actually months. And to be an investor with a good brand is very helpful. I agree with that. I think one of the other things that having that well-established separate entity lens is validity when a target is looking at a potential number of investors and there are a number of corporates in the mix and the target is only likely to go with one or two of them. Like you said, having the entity validates the ability of the corporate to get to signing and get to closing quickly because I think targets see that as the corporate having well-established processes and procedures to do things like approve the transaction and the transaction documents. The other thing that I think the separate entity lends validity to is the diligence process. I think targets see corporates with well-established units in whatever form they may take as being corporates that have thought through what their approach to diligence with respect to these types of investment is going to be. Often, when corporates are participating side by side with certain financial sponsors in particular, the target and the lead financial investors may have no appetite whatsoever for a long and drawn out diligence process. And so to the extent that there is a corporate venture arm in place that has already made predetermined decisions about what it's going to do in those scenarios, whether it's willing to pivot, whether it's willing to focus diligence on one or two areas instead of doing a deep dive is going to be really important to getting the deal done. I think there's also an issue with the perception, how the corporate is perceived by the startup. For example, if the business teams that are relevant for making that decision are too close to making or to getting the deal done or to doing the deal, to assess the target, to do the negotiations, we have seen times when a startup says, no, we don't want that investor because, first of all, they might be too pushy on commercial collaboration. But uh, second of all, it might also limit our opportunities or options for raising funds with competitors later on. And so it is a, it's a balance of getting the right people involved for doing the technical DD, but also having the people that have the actual knowledge how to navigate in the venture ecosystem, making the decisions and actually getting the deal done then later. Absolutely. And I think maybe another sort of perceived upside, but I'm keen to get your thoughts, is also that a separate fund or a separate entity might be a bit less vulnerable to changes in senior management. So, I mean, really having that separate entity, it's much more difficult to get rid of it if priorities change after a change in leadership. So I think that could also be, yeah, almost like a cosmetic upside to having it really sit separately with its own um, budget and team. Yeah, and just on the con side, to be devil's advocate here, it might, in that case, then get more difficult to deal with the issue of information sharing. And one of the risks, of course, I'm sure you, you guys have seen that as well in the past, is that if you have very independent entities, they sometimes tend to to think, oh man, oh man, that's actually working very well. That's actually much better than my old corporate uh, strategy job. So I might just spin off and do my own thing. That is uh, <laughs> something we have seen a couple of times with very independent CVCs and uh, something to keep in mind as well. 
we have talked about a lot of those tools and the, the pros and cons, but for like for me, one of the biggest challenges, at least for our clients in Asia and especially in Japan, is very often actually how to start, where to start uh, with all of this, because the market in Japan is not as mature as in the US and probably also compared to some countries in Europe. But it's developing rapidly. And of course, you have companies like uh, SBI, SoftBank that are big investors globally. But at the same time, it's a very long-term process that is vulnerable to change in senior management. There aren't a lot of really dedicated advisors. Traditional VCs are, like, due to their focus on financial returns, aren't really, or very often at least, are not really offering the right product for corporates with a certain strategic interest. And I find that to be very often a big hurdle to overcome for our clients and Probably one of the reasons why very often we are actually talking to them about mostly non-legal questions about CVC rather than legal questions on how to make investments and stuff like that. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I often find myself playing banker a bit in talking to my clients about strategy and partnerships and sourcing and who the right people are. I think in the US, we're maybe a little further ahead in that there is so much activity now in the venture space and the growth equity space that so many of the funds are actually seeking corporates as partners because it lends them additional credibility and validity with a lot of targets. And so there are some corporates that I think are having the opposite problem, which is that they're drowning in offers to partner with certain funds. And what they need a little help with is calling and figuring out who the best partner is for them. Yeah, here you really see that the U.S. is, you know, still leading the way. I think in Europe, it's still very, very fragmented. I think, as Marcus said, in, in Asia as well, we have the U.K. leading the way and then Germany as a, as a second and then comes France and Spain. But the rest is still very much behind. I think in, in Europe, we still see mostly U.S. investors. So I think most investments in European startups and scale-ups are still coming from U.S. VCs, but also corporate venture capitalists. So I do think Europe, it's traditionally lagging behind and we will eventually catch up as we, as we typically do, but definitely a few years lagging behind. So I agree. And interestingly, we're seeing more and more our corporate clients asking us about investments in Europe and in Asia. I think particularly given the numbers that you stated before and some of the examples that we've talked about with respect to corporates getting involved in more and more deals, in bigger deals, in growth equity, in high valuation investments, this is going to be an exciting space to watch over the next few years. And I don't doubt that Europe and Asia will soon be very much catching up to where we are in the U.S. So it's been fun speaking with you both about this. I imagine we'll spend a lot of time together over the next several years continuing to have these discussions. So Salwa, Marcus, thanks for being here today. 